Hello and welcome to Humans of Magic. I'm your host, James Sue. This episode is with Melissa DeTora, Senior Game Designer at Wizards of the Coast. Melissa is also widely known as the first female Magic player to top eight a Magic Pro Tour. She's made a very successful transition from professional Magic player to designer. And this is going to serve as a kind of retrospective of sorts. We're going to talk about Melissa's hits and misses as a design team lead in 2023. We're going to get a little inside baseball into what it's like to work at Wizards of the Coast. And last but not least, we're going to go down memory lane. We always enjoy going down memory lane stories. We're going to get into that, Melissa's past, and even how the process of learning can be similar between uh, her learning a new activity like ice hockey with Magic the Gathering. It was a ton of fun to record this, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. If you enjoy Humans of Magic, you enjoy what I do as a passion project, labor of love, I would highly appreciate it if you could consider joining the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. If you join the Patreon, you can get access to our Discord community. You can get early access to episodes before they come out. A few other perks like the Digital Humans of Magic book. But most of all, it's just a way to show support. If you like what I do, and I definitely want to do more of it in 2024, I have some ideas on how to take this to the next level. Every bit of support goes a long way, and your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening, and let's get to the episode with Melissa DeTora. Melissa DeTora, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Like, I'm on vacation from work, so that's great. Um... Work has been going well overall. Uh, we just had layoffs at Hasbro, so that kind of sucked. That made the week very hard. So, it, But overall, I'm doing okay. I'm still at Wizards, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, still doing the, the thing. And are you doing vacation still in Seattle, or have you decided to travel a little bit? Oh, I'm on vacation in Seattle. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, traveling during the holidays really sucks, and I try to do it as little as possible. So I'm using this next couple of weeks to just like relax and recharge and get ready for the new year. Okay, so I thought it would be a good time for us to talk because it's also, as you said, the end of the year. It's that we're heading into the new year, and I just think it's really interesting whenever I talk to someone who works at Wizards because there's just a lot of inside baseball as far as design and other topics go. And I thought it would be fun to kind of have a year-end retrospective wrap-up of, you know, I'm sure the year, uh, actually, I can't assume that. For me, the year feels like it has gone by really quickly. I don't know how it has felt for you. I would say it has gone by very quickly. Like, uh, we work so far in advance, so, like, I feel like things that... Are we worked on are not coming out forever you know like they're coming out in 2025 that sounds like so far away from now and things that are coming out recently i feel like we worked on that years ago so it just it really does feel like time goes by really fast like mkm uh, murders of karlov manor like that set is going to be like previewed pretty soon and i feel like we worked on that so long ago so i'm just like i don't even remember anything about that set so like yeah time is kind of crazy at wizards yeah, but you're still not allowed to talk about specifics for that, right? Because it's still not technically out. So there's still kind of a, a silence period sort of deal. Yeah, I, I, it, I can talk about what the public knows, 
Um, right. I think they know a handful of cards. They know the overall general flavor, um, which is like murder mystery set. Uh, but uh, I have to be really careful because I don't know everything that the public knows unless I follow social media very closely. So usually like when I get asked stuff or I get asked to talk about things kind of like this, I kind of think back, all right, what was previewed on our website? All right, I know that I can say mm -hmm. that, you know, but like mm -hmm. other than that, I'm really careful about it. Right, because you know 100%, but you have to be so... It has to pass through this filter of the public relations or what is publicly communicated, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, it's so, so much harder these days, even with universes beyond, you know, because it's like we have to be even more careful with that kind of stuff. Like, I know that you guys know that there is something with Marvel, mm -hmm. but... That's all. That's all I can say. So we'll just <laughs> right, leave it right. at that. Right. Okay. So I thought maybe it would be easy to start off in a more lighthearted way because I know you've attended a lot of events. Like this was a year for you in yep. which you, I think it, what was it like? Was it MC Vegas? Maybe there were other MCs or Magic Cons. I should definitely spell what the abbreviations are. Not everybody knows. There's all, there was also yep, yep. CubeCon. So Take me through that. Like, I, I don't know if there's like a chronological way you want to do it or just kind of. Um, yeah, sure. Just, yeah. So let's start with the Magic Cons um, because that's something that I've been attending as WOTC staff. Um, so my team, Casual Play Design, has been asked to attend these events. So we're actually going to go to all of them next year, which is awesome. Um, but they started um, having some of us go. Like, we did Vegas, we did Minneapolis. I don't remember if there was another one. There was Vegas the first year, but that was a whole year ago. Um, so they asked us to go and um, play Commander with people who like pay for the VIP tickets, so in the Black Lotus Lounge, and like talk to them, hang out, um, play games, do drafts. And uh, the uh, VIP Black Lotus Lounge people have responded really positively to that. They're really grateful that we're there, just talking to them. Some of them have no idea who we are, so that's crazy. And some of them are like, oh my god, I, I'm so happy to meet you. Um, so it's been pretty awesome, and like the events team was like, yeah, you, like we want you guys to go to all of these. This is really cool. So um, they want us to do more like like scheduled programming. I can't really talk about specifics of what that means, but think about it like if you guys know that Gavin Verhey does his unknown event um, where it's like there's playtest cards and all that, so they asked us to put on some kind of thing like that. I can't talk about what that means, but sure. let's just say it's that we've been... Yeah, it's a mystery. We've been working on it for the past couple of months. And uh, the next one is Chicago. So Chicago will uh, be the first one that our whole team's going to be there. And we're going to do an event. And it's going to be really fun. Okay. That's all you can say. But I'm sure there's been a lot of planning <laughs> and, uh, you know, yeah. figuring out the logistics and all of that, right? Yeah. And, like, you know, that's just one part of the event. Um, as for, like attending MagicCon in general, I found it to be super rewarding and just really fun um, walking around and visiting like the creator booth and getting to meet all of these creators who love magic and like they're really happy to share what they do with other people. Some of them have no idea that I work for Wizards. They might see me like wearing a magic shirt or something and might uh, put that together, but some people have no idea who I am. So I, so I go up to them and it's like, oh, hey, I really love what you do. Like, th this is so awesome. I love your stickers. I love your merch. And like, some of them's like, hey, can you tell me about what you do? Because maybe I've never met them before. I, I should I should probably give you a space to say this just in case there are people who are listening that don't know exactly what you do right now for Wizards. So can you just quickly um, intro that? Obviously, I'll record an intro as well, but you can. Oh, yeah, sure. 
Sure. So um, I work in uh, Studio X, uh, formerly known as Magic R&D. Uh, so I'm a game designer, senior game designer for Tabletop Magic. Um, and specifically, I work on the casual play design team. I'm the technical lead of the team. Um, we focus on casual formats, most specifically Commander. And we do Commander playtesting, Commander card designs. We work on set teams. Uh, we try to give our perspective for casual formats and new player experience and stuff like that. Thank you for that. And uh, you're just going back to what you're saying about magic cons. Isn't it wild how there are now these very distinct subcultures? I mean, as in like there are people that are involved as a creator or they know of magic creators in EDH space, but then there's also another culture, which is kind of like your background of a pro player. So people may know you from your pro tour days, but it, it seems like magic has gotten so big now where there is this kind of divide where someone may not, there may be people who just don't know who Reed Duke or Melissa DeTora mm -hmm. are that are just totally into EDH. And it, it sounds like you're kind of experiencing that firsthand, like going through magic hunts. Yes. Yeah. Actually, uh, here's a story. Um, there is this one guy I met at a past magic con. I think I met him in Minneapolis, but he also went to Vegas. He also has been going to all of them and he gets the VIP thing every time. Um, so anyway, we played in a Gavin Unknown event together, and we had a really fun match. He was friendly. We chatted for a bit. And then when our match was over, I looked behind me, and there's a line of people wanting me to sign their cards or their playmats. And, like, we had just finished our match. He was sitting there. So I started signing stuff, and he's like, wait, hold on. Why is everybody asking you to sign your the, the playmats? I don't understand. Like, like who are you? Um, and I told him who I was <laughs> and, the, and that I work for Wizards. And he's like, oh, that's so cool. And like, I told him a little bit about like what I did. And then um, he's like, how do you get that job? And I said, oh, well, I, I was a former Pro Tour player. And, um, you know, I'd, I've been playing for a while. And one of the people who work in R&D recruited me to work on uh, for magic development. He was like, oh, my God, I was sitting. I played magic with a pro player. And he was just like so like in awe that he played magic with me. And he had no idea who I was. Mm -hmm. And um, I... A lot of my coworkers at Magic Cons get very similar experiences that they're just playing magic with people who just want to go to a convention, but they mm. don't know anything about like pro play or about people who work at Wizards. They just like magic and they want to go to a convention the same way that people go to Comic-Con and stuff just to see mm. the experience. Mm -hmm. it, it'll be like someone going to... Uh a Marvel booth and not knowing who Stan Lee is or someone who was involved in making the thing or to use the Chinese proverb like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, right? That was also a movie where they don't know that these powerful wizards are actually like playing across from them because you've had quite a distinguished resume. You are that Crouching Tiger and they didn't know that you were. So yeah, um, um, it's it's kind of awesome actually when people don't know who I am. It's like kind of like a breath of, breath of fresh air, you know, to just uh, like, okay. I feel like I have, I did what I did in Magic long ago at this point. Um, and the longer I'm at Wizards, the less, like, out there I am and like in the Magic community, unless I'm like active on social media or something. And I would say that I am medium to low active on social media. So like, people who have only been playing Magic for five years, and that's a long time to be involved in a hobby. Five years is a long time. They might have no idea who I am because I did my like I was more known like 10 plus years ago you know mm -hmm. I thought there was gonna be a funny twist of the story where maybe 
the guy you're playing was actually the famous person or actually trying to get <laughs> that would be funny too if he was actually some sort of um you know someone outside of magic who's famous that actually no he um, was just this guy played. who loves magic he was also from europe um so he traveled far and spent a lot of money to come to the convention because he like gets vip um yeah but like now uh since we've done what four of these conventions by now he like he's gone to all of them and now like all of my coworkers they know who this guy is because like he's always in the vip lounge and just talking to all the wizards employees now but like okay. that first one minneapolis it was really funny when he was just like in awe yeah. that he was playing magic against some former pro player who now works at wizards have you guys thought about maybe publicizing a bit more as in like maybe even having a name tag that says like i'm melissa this is what i used to do or having some sort of setup for it yeah i would say it's a work in progress um the first vegas there was not really a lot of that um and then over time it's been getting better and better we now do have name tags um i actually have one let's see if, if i can get one real quick i'll show you okay so I know this is on YouTube, right? So this is fine to, to show this. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, People will see the visual, yeah. Okay, yeah. so this is um, the name tag that I was given on at one of the cons. I don't remember which, but, like, we've gotten this yeah, that's, same, that's like, like yeah. this. they use this photo for a couple of the last uh, recent ones. So it is getting better as far as telling the public that Wizards employees and or Magic celebrities are around. Um, this time around, I happened to check out the website for Chicago, and they did list a bunch of Wizards employees' names that are going to be there. I am pretty sure they did not do that last time. Not totally sure, but I feel like it's just kind of like, uh, I think Wizards is overall kind of new at conventions. Like, we did GPs and Pro Tours, but conventions, Wizards didn't really do in the past. The first one was Vegas of, what was that, 22? Um, so it's a learning experience for the people who are running the events. And um, it keeps getting better and better. So I, I like the direction it's headed. Yeah. Now, did you actually, uh, you, you said you played in Gavin's event or it was the, is the, it's the playtest card booster draft? Yeah, or... it's called the yeah. Gavin Unknown Event. And the, the event is event. a, it's a sealed deck tournament, but you also get a pack of uh, playtest cards that Gavin and others make specifically for the event. And they're all just like funny cards that we would never print in real life they're similar for if you're familiar with mystery booster and the playtest mm -hmm. cards from mystery booster he just makes a bunch of those they're usually themed to either mm -hmm. the set the most recent set or the city we're in or like conventions in general right mm -hmm. so like barcelona there was like a famous barcelona landmark playtest card for example you know he'll do stuff like that Okay, so it's steam for the event, and is it like a cube where you give the cards back at the end, or do you get to keep them? Nope, players just get to keep them. So there are a bunch of these playtest cards with stickers running around, and so they become um, actually collectible, like they're one of one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure some of them are very desirable, um, especially okay. the ones that are like fun to play in Commander or whatever. Did you did you keep yours? Like, was there a particularly uh, memorable card or cards that you have? Um, so the first one that I did, which was, I think, Minneapolis, I ended up giving my sealed pool away to somebody else because I don't need magic cards, you know? Like, okay. I have access to pretty much all the magic cards I want. And, um, mm. you know, I was at dinner with a bunch of content creators, and, like, one of them was like, I didn't get to play, I'm bummed, it was sold out, and I'm like, oh, well, here, have my sealed pool. So he was really grateful for that. And uh, it, the second 
one that which was the most recent Vegas, I just like put it in a box and kind of left it there. So I don't know, maybe five years from now, I'll go look through that box and find it. Do you know at all if they're desirable in the secondary market? Do people eBay these cards or do something with them? I honestly have no idea. Um, and okay. I'm probably like, probably shouldn't really talk about that kind of right, stuff anyway. The secondary so, market. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I have okay. no idea what like what cards are worth these days. Um mm -hmm. at Wizards we're not allowed to sell cards, so I just kind of keep everything and uh someday just, just hoard them. <laughs> yeah, just hold on to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Someday okay. I will have a giant collection of cards that I will actually want to do something with. But for now I just kind of have shelves of boxes and sets and singles and stuff. That's, yeah, that, that's funny because as a longtime Magic player, even though I'm not a Wizards employee, I also have completely gotten over like, oh, these are Magic cards. Like now when I win packs or when I, when I come up with like decks I've drafted, I just throw them in a cupboard. I just never look at them. They, they've just ceased becoming like, I wish I didn't feel this way, but like they're just kind of there now and I just enjoy the gameplay the in the moment magic as opposed to actually like the cards i don't know maybe it's not great to say but it's just like for me it's just like they're just it's they're just it's just a vessel to to have fun so after i'm done playing with the cards i just don't really care all that much about the cards so yeah i think it depends on like your goal and like where you are like what are you doing in magic like if you are a competitive grinder you care very much about the cards because you need to maintain a collection for modern or pioneer or stuff like that. But if you are like, imagine you only play sealed, um, you only go to pre-releases or you like draft once a week at the local store and you don't ever play constructed. What are you going to do with your deck afterwards? You know, you just kind of uh, put it away or I don't know. I guess it really depends on uh, maybe your financial situation or like what your goals are in magic. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I went off on a tangent, but where I was trying to start with the question earlier was, um, in addition to doing the Gavin's event, did you also play games of EDH with people? Uh, is that what you also did? Or, yeah, I'm trying to understand that part. Yeah, uh, I, I did a little bit of that, yep. Um, so, like, we are, like, on a schedule That should be challenging for, uh... because that games can take a long time. That's why I was wondering. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. So, um, we had, like hours blocked off where this is the time that you're going to be playing commander you know okay so like once a day for a couple of hours which gives you one to two games you know and then we had another time blocked off this is the time you're going to be in this gavin event or this is the time that you're going to be on uh this panel or like we did a chaos sealed one of the days where that was like four hours of just getting as many chaos seals as okay. uh, chaos drafts actually as you could that that's something that i'm wondering about as someone who doesn't play commander a heck of a lot is there some sort of like unwritten social code about because you want to you want to play games of commander you want to like learn from the interactions you have with players especially in your role right as the as as casual play design but how do you know how how to like gracefully like leave a game and because sometimes games can just go on super long like sometimes like you yeah. need to figure out how to how to move on you know that's that's a tough yeah part. Well, one great thing about the convention is um, the players often have their own schedule as well. Like, they might want to go to the next panel or they might have an event or something. Um, so, like, 
we're usually in the VIP lounge, um, and like they'll advertise, hey, play magic with uh, game designers from 10 to noon on this day or whatever. So like they know if they go there, they'll be able to find us there. And um, usually when we start the game, I'm like, okay, I have a hard stop at 12. Um, I have this other thing. So that means I have time for like one game or like, oh, maybe I can't start a second game or something. So like, I just let them know, you know? Uh, and if you don't like set that boundary, you might be playing magic for six hours, you know, and then be like, mm -hmm. oh, oops, I forgot to eat lunch or something. So okay. you do so have to be careful at these things. Okay, so fortunately, there are others that are also on schedule, so you might not even be the first to break up the game or say, I gotta... Yeah, I gotta yeah, like, like especially, on. like, at Magic Cons, I think it would be different if it was, like, a Command Fest or a GP, because, like, there's a lot less stuff to do, but a lot of these uh, conventions, the players go for the panels, like, there's preview panels and meet and greets with, like, Game Nights or whatever. Um, game Nights Live is a really popular one, and, like, a lot of people go to go to these panels because there's so much like really cool content that you can really only get there so they right. often don't, don't want to miss, miss the panels that. yeah yeah for sure and if i could ask you to generalize maybe from the magic con interactions with players right just just customers or players like are there certain insights that you feel could be generalizable out of like the magic cons that you went to were there certain things that you learned or maybe even surprised you in terms of like players reaction to commander in some ways uh so these events is a lot different from like i was saying about the command fest or gps where the at command fest or gps they're going like specifically to play magic and then at magic cons they're just going for this experience and also they might not know anything about like what command fest or gps in the past were like so like Maybe they've never played in any organized play before. Maybe they've never even played Magic at a game store before. So for some people, it surprised me that this was like all new to them. And uh, they maybe never played Magic with people outside of like their friend group or whatever. So that was surprising, uh, like that they didn't know about organized play. It's like you have to remind yourself, maybe as someone who works on Magic, that people are not necessarily exposed to the structured play or structure play opportunities that are out there that there could be people that are literally just kitchen table all the time at home kind of thing. Yeah. And honestly, we did know that, like we had a good idea that the majority of players did not do any organized play. But when you go to a magic con, you see it firsthand a lot more, you know, like you actually meet people who've never done organized play, you know, mm -hmm. they're like game stores. What's that? You know, I, I have, uh, I watch my favorite YouTuber, do magic do commander content um but they've never walked into a lgs did you get any interesting comments from players about how certain cards were designed or certain uh things were done in the edh space basically a uh, good question i would say that the like content creators and more enfranchised players are more likely to ask questions about that and the random con goers are less likely to ask questions about that. Like, I think it's mostly because they don't know what to ask or how to ask it. Um, let's see, this is kind of hard to articulate actually. Like, they don't know what the problems are. They're just playing cool cards that they like. They're not thinking but... about things like power level or things in the magic discourse, like should cards be this and that, Yeah, right? They're not, they're just enjoying the game really. They're just like, uh, that's my assumption. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think that's pretty accurate. Like, for example, maybe these players don't know what's on the ban list. Or, like, they don't know what is, like, the soft banned card of, of the week. You know, like, a few months ago there was a bunch of discourse about Collector Oof. If you uh if you're familiar with that, but um the the uh the random less enfranchised players, they might not even know about that discourse. They might know that it's they might not know that it's an oppressive magic card and not fun. Um, like they might have no idea, you know. Uh but like the enfranchised players, those people are more likely to be like, Oh, why'd you make collector roof? you know? Or yeah. like like why did you print reprint risk study now all my friends are playing it and i hate it mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know but like mm -hmm. people who are not tuned into the internet are less likely to know what the problems even are you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's interesting to me because i feel like for those of us who are very close to magic in the discourse obviously you and i and content creators we manage to put a language around what fundamentally is just about fun and i think for many I would say more casual magic players. I always hate using this term because it's so, it's such a general term too. Like there's no language around it. It's just like, am I having fun or not? And we've managed to codify or codify it into like a lot of like very deep discussions. Like, okay, is collector roof good for the format? But at the end of the day, it's really like, am I just having fun or not? And maybe that's just what it is. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and Another one that comes to mind is uh, rule zero conversations. How many players actually have them, right? My guess is not very many, you know? Uh, like, anecdotally, like, a lot of casual players I talk to, they don't even know what that means. Because, like, mm -hmm. for you to know what that means, you have to know who the rules committee is because they're the people who, like, promote rule zero conversations. Um, or you have to go to an LGS where they talk about it. Um, but if you are just playing magic, like at your school or like just, you know, once a week with your friends or family, like rule zero conversation is like a foreign language to you. You know, it's like, like I sit, sit down to play, oh, do you want to have a rule zero conversation? And then they're like, well, I don't know what that means. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's kind of like, it, it's just this extremely developed protocol. I would equate it to like, if you've never been in debate club and you're just talking to your friend about. I like this thing or I don't like this thing. That's all there is to it. And you don't need to understand the the conventions of debate and how to like have this protocol for doing things. And I'm sure like less than 1%, 1% might even be too high of magic players have rule zero conversations, right? It's just something that's so yeah. specialized, right? Yeah, it's, it's so hard to know like what the actual number is because we don't even know what percentage of players don't um, do organized play or like don't know who the rules committee are, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's just really hard to know who the invisible players are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anywho, I'm just I'm just kind of, that's just my biased opinion, right? Maybe, maybe may, I, think, I think Wizards does a lot more of like surveys and studies of player demographics. So I'm sure that there's more data out there. This is just my observation yep. in general. It's just yeah. that there's a lot of magic discourse online that the average magic player has no idea about, just no idea whatsoever. Yep, definitely. Uh, I remember a, a while ago, Mark Rosewater wrote something that got a lot of discourse about like 
the majority of magic players don't know what planeswalkers are, you know? And then the internet was like, wait, how is that a thing? Like, how do you not know what a planeswalker is? Like, right. you know, you've been you, pushing this you, archetype like, or this card for a decade. Yeah, or, you watch magic yeah. coverage, they're there. You like read articles, right. they're there. Like, they're all over but you like, have to watch all the YouTube channels, know. you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, but then Rosewater's argument was, um, you know, if you go to Walmart and you buy a bundle and you open up the packs, you might never get a planeswalker. And then maybe you'll get one and you have no idea how to use it, you know, mm -hmm. unless you do further research about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of his argument. And uh, the question is, how many players fall into that category of they don't know what a planeswalker is? You know, is it like the vast majority? Is it like a just above the majority? Mm -hmm. Not really sure. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll use a, a flawed analogy here. I know you mentioned that you're... You've learned you were learning ice hockey this year, so you learn obviously yep. for me that I assume it means you know how to skate, you know how to handle the puck, you know how to what sticks to get. So it's like we could be talking about um, what brand of skates or like what um, gear you have to buy, and then the average person might just be watching the NHL on TV and has no idea whatsoever about any of these things or how <laughs> strategies go when you're playing for an ice hockey team, right? It's it's just like it's just it's not even the same language or the same world. So, yeah. And like, honestly, even hockey players have no idea what brands they're supposed to buy. You know, like oh, I remember have, like you run one into of that problem. <laughs> yes, actually. And, um, like, especially new players. Like, so for me, I just walked into the pro shop and said, Hey, I'm doing learn to play hockey help. And the kid working there just told me what I need to get. Um, but I remember like, one of my teammates was like, so I'm, uh, I'm looking for new elbow pads. What do you think are the best elbow pads? And I'm just like, I have one pair of elbow pads. That's all I know. I have no experience with this at all. You know, like right. we're all in our first year, so no clue. Yeah. Do you ever think about that? Like if someone says like, what kind of sleeves should I get for my magic deck or what, what commander deck should I get? Like what, how do I get started? Like, how do you answer these questions, which on the surface seem very simple, but if you think about it, become kind of impossible. Yeah. Um, so I do read a lot of Reddit, uh, magic Reddit, and, uh, people do ask these questions all the time. And when you read the answers, you can tell, uh, who is like too enfranchised where they're giving too much information. Mm -hmm. And then there are others who are like, kind of like putting <laughs> themselves in their shoes and kind of explain it in more simpler terms, mm -hmm. you know? Like, for example, um, I'm looking to buy uh, my first booster box. What should I get? And then, like, somebody will respond, you should buy nothing. Buy singles. It's the only way yep. to go. Yep. Figure out what deck you want to play <laughs> and buy the singles. And the person asking... That's too deep. Yeah. <laughs> they have no idea what they even want to play. You know, like, they don't know anything about formats. Mm -hmm. You know, They just, like, you know, ran into magic and they just kind of want to see what it's all about, you know, just like look at some cards, you know? Right, right. So, you know, there's like a too much information and then like, yeah. but like, honestly, like a lot of the Reddit answers are, are usually pretty helpful, but you always have those people who are like, mm -hmm. no, you are wrong in asking this question. Instead, do this, you know? Yeah. So you're like, what elbow, elbow pass should I get? And then the person in the store is like, well, first you need to figure out if you actually want to play ice hockey. What is the reason? What is your why for playing hockey? Like, like, you know, like <laughs> learn, like learn whether you want to do this or not. Then I'll tell you what elbow pads. It, it'll be like really 
like it could be true, but it could be very difficult to to wrap your head around, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I think we're going a little bit far, but just going back to the events, right? Um, you also attended, I believe, KubeCon, which is a very specialized thing, and I think this yeah. is this is for people who are very. I dare say, like quite hardcore. So maybe for those who don't know about yeah. KubeCon, maybe yep. set it up for us. Okay, so um, KubeCon is a small portion of a general gaming convention. So think like Gen Con, but much smaller scale. Maybe ten thousand people attend this event. Um, so it's like a it's a gaming convention. So they do role playing games, tabletop. Um, they have a true dungeon there. Um, the game. Convention is called Gamehole Con. It's just a local convention in the Midwest. And they have a small magic portion there, and that's KubeCon. And uh, let's see. I guess I can give, like, the history. So I think KubeCon was started by Jaybro, who is a Cube streamer on Magic Online, and um, Brian Kowal, who is the game store owner of the local game store in Madison, Wisconsin, Misty Mountain Games. Maybe some others. I don't totally know the history of who started it, but I know that those two, um, they were the two that were running the event that weekend. I think they ran it the first year as well. Oh, it was the second year. I guess that's that's uh, also maybe important to know. I don't know. The way that the event works is cube builders from the community, from, from anywhere really, bring their cubes to the event and anybody can play them all weekend. And that sounds kind of wild because, you know, it's their cubes, their personal cubes, and strangers are playing them. Um, and it sounds kind of crazy, but uh, it was actually very well run, and there were very few issues with the cubes. So, like, the way that it worked was um, all the cubes were on Cube Cobra. You can sign up for the cubes you want to play. And then at scheduled times, the cubes would run. And um, the eight people would get together and uh, run the cube, and every cube would have a judge. So the uh, the judges were, like, you know, watching to make sure there was no, like, theft or anything, and every player had to, like, take a picture of their card pool and upload it to the website to, like, prevent, like, theft and stuff. And as far um, as I know, there was no theft, which is really cool, because there yeah. were a lot of cubes there, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure about the first year of KubeCon, because I wasn't there and I don't really know anything about it, but talking with the people who were running KubeCon, they were saying that, like, so many more people decided to bring their cubes to the event. They had an overwhelming amount of cubes, um, like, several dozen or whatever. Like, I think they had enough to support, like, 500 or so players. So whatever the math works out to, that's how many cubes were in the event. And there were, like, vintage cubes, which was crazy. There were all different kinds of themed cubes, like, super weird themes. Like, um, the themes could be mechanical themes, or it could be, like, uh, flavor themes like for example there was one um called the boat cube where every card had to have a boat on it um in the artwork didn't play that one in the artwork yeah or wow. maybe in the name i don't know okay um there were also a lot of very interesting rules cubes so like they like broke a rule of magic um for example there was one cube it was like a a vehicle cube and um in your game you start with the card mech hanger in play the mech hanger is a card that um, animates your vehicles. Um, so that was very interesting. There was a lot of like weird things like that where like they just added a rule onto the game of magic and they built a cube to utilize that rule. Another one that I thought was really interesting 
was the Cascade Cube. And the rule is your first spell you cast has Cascade or something, you know. Mm-hmm. And the cube was designed to uh, draft cards that kind of break Cascade. So, for example, I play my free Force of Will. So I paid no mana, and now I get to Cascade into a 4-drop during my opponent's turn, you know. Things like that. Oh. Okay. So, anyway, that was like the event, uh, like how the event worked. As for was the event cool, I thought the event was was really cool, actually. I had a lot of fun. I was impressed at how much fun that I had. I thought that I would have like a medium amount of fun because I was there as WotC staff. And, you know, usually when you're there as WotC staff, you have to kind of be like always on and, you know, positive and present yourself in like a very like corporate-y kind of way. But mm-hmm. I found CubeCon to be like very laid back and relaxing and I could be myself more. And it just like brought me back to old times of playing at GPs or just like playing cubes as at side events of uh like of PTQs or something like that, or just like side drafting, that kind of thing. So super fun event. I will say that the uh competitiveness was like very high, even though cube is kind of a casual format. I I think um there was like pretty big prizes and um I don't know like the the player base ran a little bit more enfranchised and just a little bit more competitive than I would think like something like uh an LGS raft or like a magic con event would go. So if that's your thing if if you like the competitive um nature of it um then it's a really fun event but if you like cube I highly recommend going. I had a blast. I played so many different cubes that weekend and I got to like talk to the designers and like see like you know what inspired you to build this cascade cube or this vehicle cube and stuff like that. So super fun event. Definitely highly recommend it. I'll probably go next year. Okay. Because I just, the way you described it, I haven't been to a KubeCon before, but it definitely sounds like it's for more old time magic players who are really into advanced mechanics. And also just drafting in itself is something that the general public doesn't do. Right. So you've got all these, uh, yeah different factors i would have to imagine it's pretty competitive because in the moment people are like trying to figure it out and i think there's a certain competitive joy in like you know here's a new cube or here's a new here's a new set of house rules right like you said with cascade and the the mech hanger and stuff it's like how do i um figure it out right because i think cube is essentially i guess i would argue like competitive magic is puzzle solving so this is really just like Mm -hmm. pushing that element a lot yeah um and like honestly, like I think the vision for KubeCon was casual, fun event where you get to just do a ton of cubes and have fun. But like you were saying, like I think if you like cube, you probably run a little bit more enfranchised. And like if you like high powered cubes and you're familiar with all of these old cards, you probably run a little bit more competitive. So throw all that on top of this is structured as Swiss rounds. With a price, with a cut to top sixty-four, yep. and then a cut to top eight, and then prizes with a pretty big first place prize. Well, the event is going to be competitive, you know. So yeah. you had like Reed Duke and Sam Black and other pro players like duking it out for like first place, and then you had other people of like, I have my fun boat cube or or whatever, you know, and like, uh, I don't know if like. Like, I don't think those cubes were meant to be competitive or not, um, but 
it, if they're in this event. Sure, but I mean, if, it's even competitive. this rock paper scissors. If you're competitive, you'll make it competitive, right? So yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. What What was your selection process for deciding what cubes to run? Was it just like, okay, I see that read, and you know, my friends are like playing this one, so let's do it together? Or did you get some um, sort of general intro to the cubes and then make an assessment? Yeah. So, so uh, so the answer is going to be weird. So, um. You didn't know who was in the cubes when you signed up. There was like this website um, where you signed up and like there was like a selection process of like choose a time. Okay, now pick your top three cubes that you want to play and then hit enter. And then um, when pairings go up, they'll try to pair you with the cube that you selected, right? Um, so there was no way of knowing who signed up for what unless you asked them, you know? Um, so as for what was my selection process like, I talked to people that I knew, talked to the people running the event, and just asked what cubes are cool. That was one. The ones that got, like, a lot of, like, that were talked about a lot, it seemed very popular, I tried signing up for those. So I signed up for Cascu Cascade Cube, every cube, got selected zero times, despite it always being in my top, because that, that one was, like, the most popular one, I think. So At least popular. one of them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and then there were other cubes that were like, they were featured on Magic Online as part of the uh, uh, players can submit cubes to be on Magic Online for a week. So, for example, Ellie Rice did a teamer cube one time, um, etc. Uh, so those cube designers have physical copies of their cubes that they made for Magic Online. So if I saw those, I was like, oh, this is on Magic Online. It's got to be good. So I picked that, mm -hmm. you know, as mm -hmm. one example. So I played some pretty good cubes, I would say. I was pretty happy with everything that I picked. I didn't pick any of the weird, like, flavor cubes. I stayed away from flavor cubes because I just, I don't know. Like the, I'm not, the like, boat cubes, they're more like yeah, Cheerios yep. than anything else. Yep, the kind yep. of like... Like, and like some other flavor cubes is like, I don't know, maybe the card can only be from, a, from the plane of Dominaria, you know? So you get cards right. from like Alpha and you get cards from Dominaria United. I don't know. Um, like those are probably fine, but like, I didn't pick those as my, uh, mm -hmm. cubes for the event, you know? Mm -hmm. So what was the most memorable cube deck that you drafted from that event? Okay. So, all right. And I guess you Where have to, to set up also the cube itself. Too, yeah, so. exactly. I, I can't talk about it unless I tell you about the cube. Contextual. Um, okay. So, um, the cube was, uh, the idea was, um speed magic so very small deck size and low life total okay so for this cube you were you start at three life um okay yeah exactly yeah, so like, no lightning like, bolts in this format huh okay <laughs> there were no lightning bolts in this cube there might have been a one damage but uh mm -hmm. but that's it so i i might be misremembering the details and there was more than one cube that had a similar structure of like very fast games so three life, um, you only draft two packs of 10 cards and you have a 15 card deck size and you don't lose to decking. And I think you only start with like three cards in your opening hand, something like that. Don't remember exactly. Um, I thought that like idea was just very interesting. So I wanted to try that out and just like see what the experience would be. Like, would it be just like the games are ending on like turn two or mm -hmm. would it be something more? But to my surprise, the cube had archetypes. Like, it had a life gain archetype. That's cool. It had, like, a combo archetype where you win with, like, Lab Maniac or whatever. 
and it also had just like normal magic playing stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, so the deck that I drafted was like a green graveyard based deck. So I remember it had Eternal Witness in it and it had um, a bunch of ways to like get stuff, like small things back from your graveyard. And I remember it also uh, played, oh, what was the name of the card? Crow Storm or something? It's the unhinged card that has Storm and it makes Storm Crows. I don't remember mm -hmm. the name of it, but is it just you know what I'm talking no. about? Yeah, I, it's no, not Stormcrow Storm itself Crow. is the one two from Portal, right? No, you're talking about the Storm card that makes crows. Yeah, I'm talking about the card with Storm that makes Storm crows. So okay. I remember I first picked this card. And I was like, I need to draft my deck around this card that makes Storm crows. It was it was really fun, um, and it was like kind of hard to do, but like you could set up like situations where you're like adding a bunch of mana in weird ways and then making yeah. like three Storm crows. And like since it's a three life format, you can win with three Storm crows, right? So. Right. But the so storm itself really cool. is hard when you start with like three cards in your hand and whatnot, right? Yeah. So, right, yeah. right. Yeah. That sounds so, so fascinating. Like, just it's, yeah, it's, it's just using I, I the magic like, yeah. mechanics, but it's like forcing you to do it in an entirely different way. Think about it differently. Yeah. And like, my main takeaway from like playing this cube and just going to the event is like, magic is just a rules system. It's just, it's a game system. It's a game engine. And there are system. so many like different games you can play that are using like this game engine, right? You know, like you can just like kind of make up a rule and then curate an entire format around this rule, you know? So, and like there were so many cubes that did that. And I was very impressed with all the different cubes and all the different rules that people thought of, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's also a test of one's magic ability, if I may, if I may dare say, because like it forces you to like, alter your heuristics about magic. Like you have to think on the fly because now you're in this different enchant world of different cube where like you have to figure it out. And if you're just someone who's like stuck on like, this is how I'm supposed to do it in a constructed format, it's just never going to work because you, you can't, yeah. you can't yeah. adapt to it. So that, that sounds super, that sounds like super hardcore. Actually, it doesn't sound like casual because you have to, if you care yes. about like doing well, you have to, you have to puzzle solve on the fly, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think the cube designers were not casual. Like they like they were very like they definitely very put a into lot it. Of thought into this. Yes, yeah, definitely. Like it was really impressive, actually. Mm -hmm. So this is something that you would do again, or would you want to make it an annual thing? Or yeah, I would definitely go again. I had a really good time. I think I had more fun at KubeCon than the other Magic Cons because like, so first I love playing limited formats cube is like kind of a hybrid uh but i also really like cube drafting as well and i play so much like quote unquote normal magic that it was just very interesting to just play all these weird cubes and just kind of see what people in the community are doing that is just like outside the norm you know like no commander no standard no like you know normal drafting it was just like very strange and out there and like i learned so much you know, and I talked to a lot of very talented people. And um, honestly, it's a good event for Wizards employees to go to like find new talent, honestly, because these people are game designers, you know, they're just designing yeah, their own say, they're designers. cube. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So um, that was one of my goals was to find people to, uh, to interview in the future, whenever that mm -hmm. may be. This is such a random question, but do you think there's anything that we can do as a community to make Cube a more popular format or more accessible somehow? 
Um, that's a really tough question because like cube is about existing cards and like making a curated format. So you have to really know magic to make a cube mm. or like get a good experience out of a cube. So that's tough. Um, like we do cubes on arena and they're just events on arena. So like, that's one way that people can learn about what is cube. Magic Online mm -hmm. is a lot tougher because uh, I think very enfranchised players play Magic Online, yeah. but like Vintage Arena cube, is a good way to do it. Yeah, I think there's some kind of cube event happening at MagicCon Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. I don't really know a lot about it, but I know that Pastimes is running it, and it's cube related. I think it's called the Chicago Cube, but I don't really know a ton about what that means. So okay. people are trying to make it accessible. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it, it's really tough just because you need like a history of magic to be able to enjoy the cube, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel bad for saying this to you because I know of, of your, your history working on magic at wizards, but like, it's, it always seemed a bit weird to me how like commander just became the most popular thing. And I thought there was always an alternate timeline where cube could have become the casual format, but it, I guess it was just not to be right. For the reasons yeah, you said. Like, I think both of the formats are like creative. So in one way you're like uh curating your deck in the way that like suits you. Like you can like, personalize it with the cards you like, and I think you do that with a cube too. Um, but it's a lot easier to do that with Commander because it's a lot less cards and you're just kind of picking one character to like be your guy that you're building around. Um and like building a cube is a lot more overwhelming you know you have a lot more it's like a lot more open-ended mm -hmm. right and also mm -hmm. uh social magic is a lot more popular than competitive magic like we that's just something that we learned over time is just true so that's another reason why people gravitate more towards commander because they want to just have like game night and mm -hmm. oh game night is magic tonight oh we're playing commander because that's the so social format mm -hmm. it's more like uh a board game where the game engine is is magic the gathering yeah it is very much like a board game you know like like a euro game it's like uh i'm gonna focus on what i'm doing i'm not gonna pay attention to what you're doing that's too complicated you know that's mm -hmm. that's uh, a lot of people's experiences with like euro games mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so shifting gears again a little uh you know i also want to talk about your your personal experience as a designer, you, you mentioned already at the top that, you know, there's sets you're working on years in advance. So obviously we won't get into super specifics, but like just thinking about perhaps gains or learnings you made as a designer, would you want to call any particular level up moments for you this year in 2023? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I probably have a couple. So let's start with, um, okay. So as you all know, we are making a final fantasy magic set. I can't really give details about it, obviously, but um, working on this set has been uh, like, that's been the most, uh, I've been spending most of my time on that this year than any other thing. You have some personal affinity for Final Fantasy as well, as I understand, right? Yes. Um, actually, I've been playing Final Fantasy since the 90s, um, before Magic even, you know, as a teenager, I started playing uh, JRPGs for Super Nintendo love them uh probably why i got into magic like at least part of the reason why because i like the high fantasy genre um so was playing those games first so yeah played a ton of final fantasy 
Um, back then it was called Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 3. These days it's called Final Fantasy 1, 4, and 6. They had to uh, renumber Localized them to match. for North America. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So in the 90s, they uh, they were like, oh, we can't name it Final Fantasy 4. They're going to get confused. Uh, so let's just call it 2, and then they'll just get confused later, right? Hmm. Yeah, so I, I played a ton of those games, um, and then uh, 7, 8, 9, a, a lot of them. I stopped playing uh, in 2002. The, the late, last game I played was um, 10. Okay. So that was like 20 years ago. Which is kind of crazy. But anyway, yes, uh, I, we got way off of your question. So yes, I, I do have an affinity for Final Fantasy. It was like the franchise that I kind of got into first before getting into Magic a few years later. But anyway, your question was about what, what are the learnings that you had? Um, so I would say that working on Universes Beyond is the most different thing that I've ever done at Wizards. Because like, you have to just care about a different thing, right? Like you have to care a lot more about the top downs and the flavor than you do about, I guess for lack of a better term, the most balanced gameplay, right? Um, so I got to design a ton of cards top down first, which was an experience that I often did not have in the past because my uh, past working at Wizards was play design, which is, Usually, like, we already have designs in the file and we are fine-tuning them. So this is coming from, like, a different perspective, uh, more of like a, hey, we're making this character. Okay, what does this character do on a magic card, you know? So I think I did have a lot of level-up moments working on this set because I had to just, you know, I had to think about it from a completely different direction, you know, like caring about the top-downs and stuff. And pretty happy about what we've come up with. Obviously, I can't give details. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we just in general, when I think about uh, universes beyond and cards that have come out, I'm not even talking Final Fantasy, but things that have come out. Um, what kinds of work is done to balance the cards, if any? Because you mentioned like it's top down. Like I want an e Honda card. I want a cloud card. Like yeah. I want I want this thing to exist. Um, but is there some sort of still some sort of bottom up? involved or balancing involved after the the fact yeah we still do our same process for play design that we've always done there's still like uh play design is still looking at the cards and balancing them for whatever formats they happen to be legal in my team casual play design is still play testing them in commander so there's still lots of balance work done but um it's just like the goal is different so like the goal of this character is uh be who this character is you know so if we want to suggest a change that goes away from that goal, it's going to be a lot harder to get that change implemented because it, the goal is he has to be this character, right? Mm -hmm. so, so to answer your question, still we're doing all the balance work that, that we do. That's still very important. Okay. And do you still have, this is a very detailed question as well, but like, do you still have debates about like what colors this um, character has to be or is that also just kind of set in stone from the early development of the card so i would say that those debates do happen but they happen very early so uh by the time we get to the play design period when we're play testing the cards in commander we already know what colors that these characters are going to be but i would say that like during vision there was you know minor debate on what color these characters should be right 
I see. Like, and there's an appropriate uh, team or, or conversations that happen at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, I would rather talk about a set that has come out because it's a lot easier sure. to talk yeah, about yeah, yeah, than yeah, a set yeah, that is do. like... Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. the Warhammer set, for example. It's like, when we make Commander decks, we try to have a balance of colors in the Commander deck so this way there's something for everybody. That was really hard to do with Warhammer because <laughs> the Warhammer characters are just black, you know? Um, I don't know a ton about Warhammer. I know a lot more now after having working, worked on the Warhammer set. But um, back then, I didn't know really anything about Warhammer. And I learned that, oh, you know, we have the Necrons. They're just black. And yeah. uh, the uh, uh, the Space Marines, very heavily black. But you can probably get away with, like, some some blue and, like, also their, like, army people, so probably white, right? Um, but it was, like, very hard to find non-black colors for the Warhammer decks, like, I think um, the set lead, Ethan Flasher, had to kind of stretch to find uh, factions sure. that uh, that would make the, the decks a little bit more balanced. So he did Tyranids, yeah. which is Teemer. But um, at the end of the day, he chose to just not have them be balanced, color-wise. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a Mono Black deck, there's a, an Esper deck, there's a Grixis deck and then there's the uh teamer deck so yeah, it's black very little it's white a grim universe and, yeah yeah <laughs> right 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 yeah doctor who is similar where it's like the doctors are very heavily blue so you could you know have a deck that maybe doesn't have doctors and have it not have blue in it but um at the end of the day uh the lead gavin verhey chose to uh have every deck have a doctor be a, about a doctor and they're just all going to be blue right I think mm -hmm. one of the decks is a uh, villains deck, which uh, I don't. I don't know a lot about Doctor Who, so I'm sorry to the Doctor Who fans if I'm Me messing neither. this up. But yeah, <laughs> but like the villains deck, I don't think has doctors in it. Maybe like, maybe uh, you know what? I'm not even gonna <laughs> bother because uh, I, I might mess this up. But yeah. even that deck is blue. It's, it's Grixis. It has if black. We're talking in it because, Star Trek uh, because I, you know I villains. Be, I would actually know this stuff, but I, I'm not, was not a Doctor Who uh, fan, so it's hard for me too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. so like like the main takeaway here is like it's important to get the colors accurate for the world. Um so like that's like the most important goal, you know, um rather than have commander decks be balanced color-wise. Mm -hmm. But of course, we do have a a goal of be balanced gameplay-wise. Like that that is important. I mean, when you have worked on these sets and I guess you could you should just talk about the sets that have already come out. Like obviously, you're giving notes or giving feedback on how like are they are most of these things being considered like because once these things once these cards come out for commander like they exist forever essentially so um i think we even talked about this in in the first podcast we did together like okay. when, you're, when you're designing for things that are like eternal essentially like there seems to be a lot of responsibility there so is it do you feel like most of the things that um you you tested and give notes on are they are they like are they for the most part are they incorporated or are there have there been like part you know situations where it's been it's been tough like just just trying to figure out the right thing that goes out yeah so we all work together collaboratively so at the end of the day we have uh the product's interests at heart right so um if my team has strong feelings about a card's like power level or something for commander and uh we give a suggestion that goes against like the flavor of the card or whatever like, we can work together and come up with something that, like, pleases both parties, right? Um, like, we can come up with a good suggestion to fix the gameplay issue while also still maintaining the flavorful top-down, right? So 
it's not like a butting heads or like one wins or anything. It's more like we are just working together on this. Okay. So other than uh, learning more about the art of uh, top-down balancing, uh, design and balancing, what, what other um, growth elements or level-ups did you encounter this year? Um, so I've been doing a lot more mentoring this year. Uh, so my team, when we started, was a bunch of like junior designers. They were brand new to game design, and now they're more experienced. So it's time for them to level up. So that's been kind of on me to uh, help them reach the next level, right? So specifically, I've been working with uh, one of our designers um, on a commander product, and uh, they were leading the commander product while I was like kind of guiding them along the way. So that's been fun. Um, it's been a learning experience, I think, for both of us, because like she is learning how to lead a set and I'm kind of learning how to be a leader and like mentor a person. So it's a lot less game design stuff. It's more just like being the best leader I can be. So been learning a lot about that. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's been, I think, very successful. I think she did a great job. Like we just finished up her team um, last month. So uh, we were working on it since the summer. And yeah, like, you know, there were a lot of learnings for both of us, and but I, I think overall it went really well. And uh, next year I'm gonna be mentoring a different person, kind of doing the same thing. Okay, so uh, the question here is how do you learn how to be a mentor? Do you get mentored on how to be a mentor or how, how does that work for you? <laughs> or maybe you just remember like what it was like when you were being mentored, perhaps. Yeah. So I think for everybody it's different, but for me specifically, I use my own failings <laughs> to help them <laughs> not do the same thing. Okay. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know how to be a mentor. You know, I just like, like when I see them doing something and I'm like, Oh, I did that wrong once. Let mm -hmm. me tell them yeah. what I did and you how did I handle this. it. consider this. This is my experience and kind yes. of thing. Yeah, I, I, I do a lot of this is my experience um, because I honestly, like, I think they can learn a lot from when people fail. You know, not saying that I, like, failed miserably or whatever. No, it's but, not like... catastrophic, <laughs> but just something you learned along yeah. the way. Yeah, yeah, d yeah definitely. So I, I do a lot of, like, personal examples of, uh, hey, here's here's something that happened and here's why it didn't work. Um, and hopefully that works. I don't know. But honestly, it's like, it's very difficult to know when you are doing well at leading somebody because they probably aren't experienced enough to give you feedback of how to do better because they're just trying to learn from you, you know? So the only thing that we can really do is did we come up with a successful product? If so, I probably did a fine job. I don't know, you know, but like, honestly, I think it's a little it's, bit it's of results-based <laughs> thinking there. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, and, and like, even that is not really the best way to go about it because this product isn't coming out until like, you know, next year sometime, 2025. Right. I don't know. So, right. and by that time, we probably don't even remember the things we talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm is attempting to be prescriptive with people that you're mentoring. Like, just don't do this or don't do that. Um, I think it depends on the person because not everybody likes to like be micromanaged or whatever, you know? So, uh, so I think at first I did a lot more of that 
and I don't think it really worked because I don't think the person really appreciated me telling them what to do. So I ended up taking a step back and being like, okay, I'm just going to let her do the thing and then I'll, you know, be quiet, maybe write some things down and we'll talk about it privately later if I have any advice or something. Um, that said, I think the more direct, you shouldn't do this approach could work for somebody else. It just isn't going to work for everybody. I think you really have to tailor um, to like the different people because everybody learns differently, right? So you, you have to kind of figure out how the person learns best and then tailor your feedback and teachings like in that way. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think it's also dependent on how open that person is to receiving a certain type of feedback. And I think as a, a mentor or a coach or an advisor, even you have to read the room. You have to understand like to what extent they want you to uh, nudge them versus tell them because uh, the, the analogy I'll give is like, you know, there's a billion books in this world, right? There are a billion sources of knowledge on the internet, or you go to a library or you buy a book, it tells you how to do something. And it's all there. But the person themselves has to want to reach for that book and has to seek it. Like, literally, you can learn anything in the world or like get any advice from Melissa or like talk to like, 100 people, and they could all tell you different things, but you have to be open. So it's almost like you have to also understand as a mentor, like, does the mentee actually want it at this point in time? And sometimes it's challenging because the mentee may not even yep. know what they want. That's also, that's also hard. Yeah, that is actually very true. And something that like we encounter a lot, like, it's like, hey, do you have any questions? And they just don't nope. because they don't no know questions. what they're supposed to be asking, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, another analogy that I usually give when it comes to like how to teach people, like how to mentor people is like, uh, for board games, everybody learns a board game differently. Some people, they'll read the rule book and they'll just understand how to play the game. Uh, some people will read the rule book and not retain any of the information, you know? Um, for me, I am not a rule book person. I need to play the game to learn the game, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like an another example is like the person talking at you, telling you how to do the thing. I also don't think that really works for me. So if we're learning how to play a board game and they're like, okay, so, you know, during your turn, you do have to do the following things. And they just talk for five minutes. Well, I didn't remember any of the stuff that you just said. Sorry. You have we to have go to through actually, the motions. You we, have to we have to actually it. do it. And mm -hmm. then by the time we're on the third turn, I probably understand the game at that point, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so I, I kind of understand the whole, uh, uh, telling the person what to do is often not going to work because I don't think that works for me, but it does work for some people. You know, some people like the rule books and they like, you know, they like to see all the stuff written down and they like to be told, Hey, here's how you do it. Now go. Right. Mm. So was it like that for you when you were a younger game designer? Like you, it was hard for you to, um, just take a bunch of theory, like, or just read articles by Rosewater or others. Like this is how ideally it should be done rather you have to experience her you have to like go through like okay the the brass tacks of like looking at a card and like specific instances is that how it worked for you yeah yeah I, I think so um and I think that was also true for me and as a magic player as well like um I need to really experience the thing to learn the thing and get better at it and uh like if somebody tells me oh uh here is the thing that you did wrong and here's how you can do it better. And they talk to me for five minutes. I kind of forgot everything that they said, you know, um, I've definitely had managers like that where, where they're like, 
you know, we're in our one-on-one -on -one and they just like tell me a thing and I'm just like, you talked for five minutes and I don't really know what you said. This is not good, you know? But then like after a while, I realized that it's because like, that's just not really how I learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or if they tell you a thing, they should back it up with some really specific examples, yeah. right? Examples. That's generally how it yep. works. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, definitely. I try to give a lot of examples when I am teaching a thing. Um, and honestly, not everybody is receptive to the example. Sometimes they're like, yeah, I, I get it. Can we move on now? You know, <laughs> so it, you really have to figure out how the person learns best. So right. that's yeah. a learning process all in of itself, which is why this job is so hard. Yeah. So it sounds like maybe this year you also had some love ups in terms of your communication ability or your communication skills. I hope so. That that would be great, right? I, I don't know. Like, um, so I've been leading this team for two years now, and the first year was mostly learning how to lead the team. And the second year is I know how to lead the team now, but now I have to get better, just fine tune things, get better at communicating, get better at mentoring people. And did I do a good job? I don't know, because it's really hard to get feedback about this, you know? Mm -hmm. I like to think I did a good job. I'm pretty happy with uh, with um, how I'm progressing as far as leadership stuff goes. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, the, the common uh, wisdom is that as a manager, your effectiveness is really the collective output or effectiveness of your team. So do you feel like that's like you've been growing that or like just just you know like they're able to do things that are of high quality because i think in the end like as a manager you're responsible for that collective output right no matter what domain you're yeah. in whether it's design or otherwise yeah so at first i just want to be clear because you're using the word manager i am not a manager of these people um mm -hmm. we have a manager who manages the team you're and... a, a lead right yeah yeah i i am a lead i like i i'm the technical lead of the team so i'm making final decisions about card designs and i'm kind of like giving guidance of like, what should we be working on? You know? So I just want to make that distinction mm -hmm. to not confuse people. Right. All right. Anyway, sorry. Uh, can you repeat your question? Oh, no, I'm just saying like, so, okay, like I can, re I can re rephrase it. So as a lead, I think whether you're a manager or a lead, you're still sort of uh, managing the collective output of the team, right? In a creative yep. way. So do you feel yeah, like you yep. have, you have improved in that area this year if you look back like, yeah. compared to two years I, ago i do think we've improved um so uh i think i'll just give very vague examples here um so i think like when the team started we were doing a lot of this card is too strong this card is not appropriate for commander we need to nerf this card a lot more of that when the team started um we're doing a lot less of that now and a lot more of the play pattern of this card is not where we want it to be. How do we improve this card to fix the play pattern that we don't like while still making it a cool card for commander or for casual play or whatever format it is that we're talking about? So I think the team is better at not straight up nerfing cards. Um, you know, we don't want to nerf cards all the time. We, we're more looking to like improve play patterns of cards and just making them more fun and making them as awesome as we can make them really. So I, so yes, I think we've improved. Um, yeah, I think we've come a long way. Okay. And I guess we'll see in the next year or two, because like these cards presumably are not out yet. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see. So I think, uh, just to give a couple of quick examples, um, 
Lord of the Rings came out in June. We were working. It was June, right? I think it was. Uh, time is an I, illusion now. I I don't know. Yeah, it's it's yeah. That's, so that sounds. I right. think it came out this summer. Um, we worked on the set when the team was still pretty new. I think the team has been existing for maybe three months at the time. And I remember we were doing a lot of nerfing cards. And when Lord of the Rings came out, I was pretty unhappy with some of the cards. Because um, I like I looked at a card and I'm like, nobody's going to want to play that in Commander. Or, I read this card and I have no idea what it does. What were we thinking? You know? Mm. Like, there were a few cards like that. And... As more sets come out, I think there are less cards like that where I'm just like unhappy with them and just more of like, I really like how this as card in, turned out. As in these cards actually have a place for somebody, whereas maybe in maybe older sets, you felt like you were not sure why they existed or what type of player it was for. Yeah, pretty much, yes. Like, uh, like um, what I remember about the card is... This card was too strong. It was just doing a thing that was oppressive in Commander. So rather than find a new cool thing for it to do, we just nerfed the card and then it turned into a card that nobody wants. Ah, uh, okay. So nerfed into Oblivion sort of thing. Yeah. Hopefully not into Oblivion. That's extreme. But, you okay, know, nerfed okay. to a point where it's just like, uh, you open this in a pack and, you, and, and you're not wowed by it, you mm -hmm. know? Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. Yeah, I I guess this is fresh on my mind because I just watched uh, Canister's video about his involvement as a consultant for um, the Lord of the Rings set. And he was saying how when he was approached by Wizards, I think him and Aspiring Spike both, um, they, were, they were told like, okay, we want to have like four or five like really memorable cards for competitive formats in the set that are defining. And so he saw early versions of the ring and uh, Bowmasters mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, I'm wondering if like, there's also similar frameworks like, okay, we want to have like X number of percentage of memorable cards for commander, um, you know, in this given set. Is that also something that is a, kind of a top down kind of philosophy? Um, for commander, I would say not really. Um, so Lord of the Rings, the goal was to be an awesome, exciting Lord of the Rings set. The mm -hmm. set was modern legal. But the goal was not for it to be a modern set in the way that Modern Horizons As in was to be a modern win set over like Modern Horizons. Yes. So, so like while the set was modern legal, like you can play these cards in modern. The goal of the set was not to make a bunch of cards to like bring up modern archetypes or whatever. We wanted to have a couple of modern shots, but at the end of the day, the set was for Lord of the Rings fans, casual play, and Commander. Mm -hmm. And I think that like a lot of our sets are going to at least be like somewhat similar where like we want the set to be as cool as it can be for casual players because the majority of our players are casual and and or play commander. So we're not really saying, okay, in this set we want to have X percentage of cards be commander cards. It's not really like that. It's just kind of like we want a player to look at these cards and think about them for commander and like think that they're cool options but like we don't have like shots for commander the way that um lord of the rings had shots for modern you know right right yeah modern horizons one and two were kind of um in my word in my words they're kind of injections into the modern format like we're just going to inject things to um to alter the 
the balance of power in this format and it sounds it it does feel like lord of the rings is less that and it's more about the flavor win at least to me as uh someone who's i think watching on the outside that 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 is true lord of the rings is about the flavor win be the best set it can be for lord of the rings fans it's more about being an awesome lord of the rings set than it is about being a set for modern yeah. Modern horizons on the other hand is like its goal is to impact modern having said that though how do you feel about the the wall of text that's in cards now because like it feels like even for someone like me who is uh uh quite entrenched in the magic i i still feel like a lot of the cards are just there's there's just essays on them and i i don't know if there's like something that should be done or not maybe i should just start off by asking what's your take on it before asking mm -hmm. you like what should be done so yeah um so this is tough because like i think the amount of words on cards is a little higher than ideal but not so high where it's like this is crazy you know like i, I don't think we're at a point where like this is too much um let's see there's a, a couple things that i can unpack here uh so one is um players like cool exciting cards that do stuff mm -hmm. and sometimes the words we have to write to get the gameplay we want is for lack of a better term long <laughs> It you is know? what it is, um, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like sometimes um to fix a problem, we want to add this ability, and the ability might make the card longer than ideal. Um but on the other hand, if you're a new player or you've never drafted before and you're in a draft on arena and you are running out of time before selecting cards, that's that me. is not <laughs> a good place to be. That is me. You know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so I've, I do think that yeah. there's like a, a couple things here, right? Like, mm -hmm. it, I think LCI is a good example because I think uh, the set had a higher word count than usual and there was some talk about it on social media. So um, it had very wordy mechanics with a lot of reminder text. So we had discover, wall of text, explore, mm -hmm. wall of text, map tokens, wall of text. Uh, was there another? I'm not sure. But definitely those three made word count extremely high at common. That said, once you know what the mechanic does, um, and especially like if you're a player who's putting this card in your commander deck, um, the word count is like a lot more manageable. Once you know what a map token does, when you play the map token card, you don't have to read it every time and be like, okay, what does that do? Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. So there's a couple things here. There's like... Uh, if it's tied to a mechanic, I think it's a lot more manageable. And if the player is choosing to play this card in their deck and they know what it does, it's a lot easier to play. The complexity for that player goes down by a little bit. But if it's a card that does something weird that every player at the table has to read every time it, it gets into combat, that's also not a place where you want to be, you know? Mm -hmm. So... So there are lines that we are crossing and we're looking at them. For LCI specifically, I think it just had too many mechanics that were wordy. Like imagine if you cut one of those and replace it with something without a ton of reminder text, then my guess is the complaints about complexity goes down by a pretty decent amount. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's a really good distinction. Like there, there are cases where, because magic is still for the most part an analog game, so it's not like you can just read it, read the 
the mechanic explanation on the card once and then it just disappears like it has to be there to make it accessible for people who need to be reminded and i guess it, it shows up like in different printings of the card too like there's certain versions of the card where you just have the keyword it doesn't have the the thing yeah. in parenthesis that explains it right uh unfortunately you can't get to a world where like it magically fades away from the card because you've read it and you understood it right um but i think you, what you're saying is that it's very different from like like things can be long but intuitive things can be short and also unintuitive so it's not a generalization about like card length necessarily means x and y um that's that's a really every time i talk about game design with you i just feel like it's such a hard <laughs> impossible job like because uh, like, yeah my yeah. mind is just blown every time i'm even unpacking like this little thing that for someone like me who's like a commoner like i just don't think about it but then like, once you start talking about it, i'm just like okay that's what actually goes into making the card and that is like really really hard um but i want to um there's also a flip side to that because every once in a while I'll play a game of magic or draft like a cube or something and there's like a keyword that doesn't have the explanation and then I'm just like, I just forget what it does and I just have to look it up. So mm -hmm. that's also the flip mm -hmm. side of it. Okay, the card is technically shorter, but it has a cost for me as well as a player. So. Yeah, yeah. On higher rarity cards, we tend to cut reminder text because higher rarity cards usually have more abilities on them and more words and we can't fit the reminder text. We try to include it when we can, but that's not going to happen on some of the more complex cards, you know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. One that tripped me up a lot was in Wilds of Eldraine, there are the roll tokens. And um, the uh, explanations for what the rolls do are on commons, but on rares, it might just say, make a wizard or a sorcerer roll. And I remember uh, playing a paper draft and like I somebody had one of the cards that didn't explain what it does. And I was like, okay, what's the sorcerer roll? I know it gives plus one, plus one. Is this the scry one? Is this the ward? I forgot, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, I had an idea of what they did because I did work on the set, but, like, when I saw the <laughs> card in paper, I forgot. And I was like, all right, all right, we do mm -hmm. need reminder text. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing it now. Do you have moments of uh, embarrassment where you are you don't want to ask what it does because people assume that Melissa should know what it does? Or are you pretty, like, no, straight I, up I'll about... just straight up ask. Um, like, okay. Because it's not my fault that there's no like <laughs> reminder text on the card, you know. So okay. I, like I think I, I think in that draft it was like with a bunch of play designers, and um, I picked up the card and I was like, "Can somebody tell me what a sorcerer role is? Does anybody have a sorcerer role?" You know, and I just like kind of shouted. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get so, you the answer. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and going back to what I'm tying it back to what we said before. Like, I wonder if this whole thing about like our card is there too much card text. Is it something also that more entrenched Magic players feel that it's a topic? And does, is it actually a real issue when it comes to the Magic community at large or not? Like, I, I'm curious. Like, on one hand, like, intuitively, yes, cards should be, like, things should be simpler. Just there should be an aspirational thing. But on the other, maybe there isn't as big a deal about this as I'm making out to be. Okay, I think it is a real issue. Don't get me wrong. Um... I like we do hear the feedback. It is something that we're talking about. We are trying to reduce the complexity in ways that we can, especially with word count. Because the situation that I hate the most is when you're drafting on arena and you run out of time because there's too many words on the cards. That's not the good place to be. Um so yeah, definitely something that we're mindful of. And like the thing that I think that we mostly identified is um just if there's wordy reminder text on mechanics don't have too many of those mechanics, you know, because that's kind of 
where we went with LCI, where we had the maps and the explore and the um, discover. Mm -hmm. Even though all those mechanics are fairly simple, they have a lot of words on them. Like, like if you're an enfranchised magic player, discover is just cascade. Explore, we already had that one before. And map token is just explore. So when you say it like that, it does not sound complex at all. But if you're a new magic player or you've only been playing for a couple years, um, it's a lot, you know, you can't mm -hmm. like have your brain go to cascade. And if you didn't play explore the first time, you know, it is a lot. So mm -hmm. definitely something that we're, we're keeping in mind. You know, I, I think, uh, the fact that our brains just kind of shortcutted to things that we knew kind of made the mechanics get a little bit away from us. Mm -hmm. So other than so, something um, we're keeping in mind for sure. Yeah, other than the word count, do you think there were other uh, missteps or misses when it comes to, you know, magic cards that um, in recent memory, like just just things that yes. <laughs> you're allowed to publicly talk about, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I Honestly, I, I, I can talk about this stuff. I'm not embarrassed. I can admit when, when we messed up. Um, so I think um, I'll talk about a card from Lord of the Rings, but I think a lot of cards fall into this category. And the card is... I think it's called Saruman of Many Colors. We might have to look this card up. Um, but this is kind of like the type of card where I think this card should not say what it does. It has too many words. You have to read it three times to understand what it does. And I think we just could have done this much Saruman better. Saruman of Many Colors. Yes, I have not seen this card all that much. Um, it, Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. I just, I just looked it up. Yeah. Um... I might need to bring the card up so I can talk about it. So let me do that real quick. Uh, okay, it has word. Whenever you cast your second spell each turn, each opponent mills two cards. When one or more cards are milled this way, exile target enchantment instead of a sorcery card, equal lesser of mana value than the spell from an opponent's graveyard, copy the exile card. You may cast the copy without paying its mana cost. Wow, that's a lot. Okay. Yeah, um, so how did this happen? Okay, so let me talk With about good intentions, what the intent. Right? Say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what is the intent of this card? The intent of this card is, uh, when you cast your second spell, you get to play a card out of their graveyard. That's it. That's what that's the card it. does. That's cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's not a lot of words. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, when we play test this card, we ran into a couple of problems. One is. You can cast the same spell over and over, and that's not fun, that's repetitive, that can get frustrating. We didn't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, two, if you're playing against a deck that's all full of creatures, and maybe they don't have a lot of instants and sorceries or enchantments, your card doesn't even work. So we wanted to fix that. And the last thing is the ward. The ward was a tough one because the ward is pretty wordy and um this ward was flavorful for the character to my understanding mm. so um so anyway let's talk about what what did we do here we added mill cards because we wanted to enable the spell casting a little bit more um we made it get exiled and copy it to reduce repetitive play patterns yep it's exiled and we kept the word wordy. So at the end of the day, you have a paragraph. Mm -hmm. So we got the gameplay that we wanted, but we made the card 
way too hard to understand. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think what we should have done was just like kind of taken a step back and said, hey, this is too wordy. How can we clean this up a little bit? You know, uh, I don't have a good solution of how we could have done that right now. An mm -hmm. easy one that comes to mind is make the ward something different. So it's not two lines. Mm -hmm. um, and then fix something with the mill, but I'm not sure what exactly. Like yeah. you could do ward the opponent mills cards. That's something. Mm -hmm. um, the when one or more cards are milled this way, I don't know why that was needed, but that can probably be something else. I'm I not totally sure. I guess there's a case sure. where a card is not milled because there's no library, like, or there's some other state-based effect. Maybe they're trying to. Um, so, like, what what is up? happening here is um, this word, this wording sets up a different trigger. So when you cast your second spell each turn, um, the opponent's going to mill two. And then after right. that happens, another trigger is going to go on the stack that says, okay, now that you've milled the two, now exile something and cast it. Sure. Um, and as, so if we get rid of the when one or more are milled this way, you will have to choose a target before the opponent mills two. So then you can't copy the thing that was just recently milled. Mm -hmm. So that's why those words are there. No, no, this this is completely correct from like a cover my bases and how triggers work and how like everything fits within the magic framework. It's just the side effect of it is that it's longer than expected. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, one easy way to solve it is just get rid of the mill two completely. And just if you if uh, it's too hard to enable, you just have to find another way to enable it. We could have like made it cost less mana. You know, um, we could have buffed it in other ways rather than just add this weird clause. Mm hmm. It's kind of, it's kind of tricky because I I can also see the argument for keeping it this way because like it's a legendary creature it does cool stuff it's Saruman like, um you know I might be like reading the card for thirty seconds but once my friend says like hey James this is literally how it works and he just you can just use like the heuristics that you said just just explain it in like human language how it works and then once I get it once it's kind of like a mechanic then I'm good for the rest of the EDH game or for the rest of the yeah. That session. is true, but on the other hand, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan opening packs and you open this yeah. card and you read this card, you might be like, I don't get it and never look at it again. So you, might, you just might be alienated from playing the card in the first place, which kind of sucks. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and I think that will come up probably more often than the situation of like you're you're in the EDH game and the friend tells you what it does, you know, because mm -hmm. like a lot more people are just like kind of casual fans opening packs. Yeah. Yeah, and they're like not going to get it into their deck to begin with, you know. Yeah, but that that you're touching on an interesting thing, which is kind of like the cost to simplify is to end up making the card not as cool or not doing all the things that the designer wanted it to do. So, like, how do you resolve that? You mentioned that there's teams that are collaborating, but like, it seems hard to 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 land on one overarching principle. Like, okay, I'm just going to make sure that like it's X or I'm going to make sure this is Y. Like in the end, yeah. it's going to be like discourse or debate over how it ends up, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's exactly true. This job is very hard and there's a lot of factors. Like there's gameplay factors, then there's like the flavor, and then there's the template and everything. And like, we can't work on cards forever, you right. know? Like, uh, so at the end of the day, we decided that this was the best gameplay 
and ran with it. If we had another couple weeks, maybe somebody would have been like, hey, this card is too wordy. Let's rethink this one, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there other like generalizable issues with some cards that have come out? Like maybe not this example, but... Double face cards. We've been doing them a lot more lately. And there are two opportunities for text boxes on double face cards, right? So over so time, we've, like, we've, yeah, we've kind of trended towards wordier and wordier. And I think we're kind of like creeping to a point where we are now a little bit too wordy on double face cards. We need to scale back a little bit. Um, my best example is Strixhaven uh, with uh, modal double face cards. Uh, so the deans, um, they were a creature, like the dean of one school. No, hold on. I'm saying it wrong. They were like, so for Lorehold, there was a red dean and a white dean. So red on the front, white on the back. And all of these deans did cool things. Great. But if you do like a very wordy thing on one side and then a wordy thing on the other side, by the time you read both sides and figure out what's going on, like you kind of lost interest in the card, you know? So the overall takeaway from St Strixhaven was um, make double face cards more cohesive and understandable of why it's a double face card. And just, like, be really mindful of how wordy it is. Because I think overall these cards were not very successful. Just by virtue of it just being too too wordy, too complicated to understand. I think both of those are true. And it re just resulted in the cards just overall not being that cool. Okay. So there is this kind of thing where if you try to squeeze in too much then it just doesn't land with players for whatever reason yeah like i think with the strixhaven cards there was like too much going on in each card and it just made the card as a whole not make sense you know like why is this one dean doing this weird thing with lands and this other dean is doing this other thing that makes no sense like it didn't make sense as a card together it just felt like two different magic cards on one card Mm-hmm. So it just was weird to read as a card, like in a draft or while opening a pack or something. It's like, okay, I got this this one guy, he does this thing, flip it to the other side, he does this completely different thing. I have no idea what's going on. What side am I supposed to play or care about? Uh is this blue green dean supposed to go in my blue green deck, or am I only supposed to care about one side over the other? So Overall, it was just weird, confusing, and it just the cards were just not overall that exciting, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your favorite magic card of all time? Oh, that... Wow, I am so on the spot. Oh, God, I don't know. Um, let's see. I'll try and think of a card that I like. All right, I'll, I'll give you an answer. My favorite card is Argothian Enchantress. Okay. I'm just linking it to what you were saying. I know this is a really weird transition, but I just feel like when I ask most people what their favorite cards are, they're generally pretty simple or they're fairly easy to understand. I'm not mm -hmm. saying every card needs to be someone's favorite card or even in their top five or top 10, but mm -hmm. I just have never heard someone say that a double face card is like their favorite magic card or even in their top five. Like it's a player, it's a piece in some deck but it just never shows up that way. So I'm, 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 wonder, I'm just wondering if, like, I'm just massively generalizing here, but I, I wonder if there's something there, you know? 
Yeah, that's a really good point, and there probably is something there, honestly. Like, double-faced cards, especially recently, um, are very, like, flavorful, right? I'll, like, so, for example, the Strixhaven cards we were just talking about, they are these two opposing deans from the same school. Sure. So that's their thing. Um, There's a story there. It's yeah. very specific. Yeah. And then in call time, it was this god and then his magical item or something. So super flavor intensive there, you know? So I think if the player chooses this as their favorite card, they're more probably more interested in like the flavor of the card. It's like, the lore you know, um, or the Vorthos aspects. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like I remember, like one of the call time ones, which was pretty interesting, was like supposed to be like Thor and his hammer or something. I, that wasn't the name, but I don't remember the name of the card. But it was like this red god who like did something with damage, and then the backside was like his hammer that was an equipment, and it like dealt a bunch of damage or something. Like you know, that's like cool and flavorful, even though it had a lot of words. Mm -hmm. So if the person really likes that story and like Norse Norse mythology. They might pick that as their favorite card. Mm -hmm. But for gameplay, probably a lot less likely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, I'm going to make another transition here. So uh, we touched on it earlier, but uh, tell me about ice hockey. Like you, you started learning right. ice hockey this year. And you mentioned to me before recording that there might be some similarities to learning something like a sport to possibly learning the learning process of magic. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so uh, like how how much beginning do we want to start here? So as much as you um, want, so. Okay, so I got interested in ice hockey because um, my partner plays, he's been playing for like over 30 years. I go to his games for like moral support. Turns out I actually really like watching. I think the game is fascinating. I think that the fact that these people are playing this team sport on ice skates is just so interesting to me. Sure. It's kind of wild if you um, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, especially for somebody who really didn't know how to skate, you know, so I had to learn how to skate too. Um, like I did like rollerblading as a kid or whatever, but I never knew how to stop or whatever. So just like the thought of like, wow, these people, not only can they skate, they also have to like coordinate moving around this, this ice surface. And, you know, with a puck and getting, like, open and, you know, also, like... in unison, like, all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, uh, you know, taking a shot while being balanced on skates is it's just wild, you know? So I wanted to try it out. So I took a couple months to learn how to skate. Then I took some learn-to-play hockey classes. Really enjoyed it. So uh, fast forward, like, six months later, now I'm I'm playing in hockey leagues. Uh still a beginner player. I, I haven't even been playing for a year yet, you know, and I only just recently learned how to skate and still have a long way to go as far as learning goes. But um, anyway, uh, the thing that I wanted to tie to magic was just like, the game is of hockey is just so deep and there's so much to learn, you know? And there's like, there's the game, like, uh, you know, the object of the game is to get the puck into the goal, whatever. But like, there's the rules of the game. There's that's so just much the more beginning. to the game. Yeah. Yeah. You have to know how to skate. You have to know all of these skating moves. And that's just so crazy to me, you know, just like how in, in magic, you can learn the basics, learn the flow of the game, but you also have to know all of these cards and uh, mechanics 
Yeah. And how to optimize building. your sideboard, how to deck build, yeah, how to read the metagame, all these kind of yeah. things. Yeah. Um, I do think that skating is there's a lot of muscle memory associated in skating. And I think there's muscle memory in magic as well in a lot of other games where you're just kind of like on autopilot. It's like, okay, like untap, upkeep, draw, play a land, attack, do this thing. And like there's a lot of like muscle memory in how you play your cards, especially in constructed, you know. So I, I thought that was very interesting as well. Okay. And uh, was it smooth sailing the whole time, like learning how to skate and then learning how to play hockey? That's a hard question. Um, it's hard because it's only you're only benchmarking relative to yourself, right? So, Yes. Yeah, it's, that is a good point. Everybody learns at different rates. Um, am I doing well for relative to other people who have also gone through this learning process? I don't know. <laughs> I would say probably. I would guess that I'm like average, um, but it's really hard to say. But like, it's really hard, you know, like uh, learning how to like turn and and stop and like move around while also not losing speed, you know. Mm -hmm. um, you need so much like coordination and balance. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, it has been very difficult, you know. But I will say that I think I've gotten a lot better months ago. If somebody bumped into me, I would just be on the ground. And these days, if somebody bumps into me, I can stay up. So okay. that's great. All right. And you do have some foundational things because you're really into uh, Pump It Up and these dance games. So you must have some level yes. of coordination yeah, already. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. So actually, good good point. Um, there's there's a fitness angle, which I already have. And then there's the muscle memory, which I think dance games are all about muscle memory because you are learning how to read a chart. And mm -hmm. like I was saying, I think skating is a lot of muscle memory. It's like when I'm in this position, in what way do I have to move my feet to not fall down? Like, I think that there's a lot of me a muscle memory associated there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, was it hard learning how to, to break or how to stop? <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably the hardest thing that I've learned. Um, uh, and also, like, the learning process for learning how to stop is so interesting because it's like, first you have to learn how, uh, you have to learn how your foot feels against the ice, okay? So what they first teach you is, like, uh, scrape the ice with your blade. So, like, imagine this is your blade and you're just going like this on the ice. The people listening do not know what I'm doing, I understand, but... Um, you're making a scraping motion, like like diagonally, yeah. <laughs> your blade going into the ground. Yeah. And the reason why they teach you to do that is because they want you to like feel, like understand how it feels to like hear that sound of the scraping and like understand how much ice is being scraped off. And like, I guess just like understand what it feels like mostly. So then when you're going into the stop, you know how much resistance you have to do to like make it so you stop and uh also like just i don't know it's i might be explaining it badly but it's kind of also like it's mostly about like the feeling of like how much ice you're scraping with your blade is kind of how that's supposed to what you're supposed to do and it's hard <laughs> that's no, all you're i'll doing, say you're doing if, great. if there's any skaters out there you, you probably no, know I, what i'm I, saying I, but I, I think i think stopping was like the hardest thing to learn i always think about when i'm asking people to explain something it's kind of like you know we all know how to drive or a lot of us do it's like how do you explain how to drive a car 
to somebody that's it seems so hard like and you just have to do oh yeah it. sure, you just, sure. Have to, you just have to do it you don't you don't say like okay i, I press on the pedal and like like it becomes second nature at some point because you have that muscle memory, as you mentioned. But it's it's like impossible to explain it to somebody. Even explaining someone how you play high level magic seems really yeah. Where tough. do you start? You know, yeah. there's just too many things to talk about. You have to you have to start somewhere, though, right? Or do you do it? I, I guess it also depends on the person. But like, you have to do some sort of combination for most people, right? You have to practice a lot. Yeah. You do um, really have to practice a lot, just like with anything, with like magic or like musical instruments or really yeah. anything. It's really all about practice. Yeah. So for magic, sometimes when you're playing magic online or other ways, you can watch replays. Like, is there the equivalent of replays for you when it comes to learning how to skate or playing hockey? Like, do you analyze film or things like that? Um, I think I'm not at the level where I will be analyzing NHL games because they just play at like such a different level that it's well, just I mean, has I'm not really going to learn, learn you, very much. Like playing hockey and did you oh, watch gotcha. it back? Yeah. Oh, um, you know, all of the games are streamed, funny enough, and you can um pay for a uh streaming you can pay for the streaming service and like watch the games. I have not done that myself. But uh like all of the rinks have this like uh there's like this app and the whole like it's streamed like 24 hours sure. a day where High you tech. can just like Yeah. Yeah, you can just log into the website and just find what you want to watch and just watch. You have to like, it's a monthly fee or whatever, you know? Mm. So I could do that. I haven't done it yet, but it's probably something worth considering. Mm -hmm. I mostly just watch YouTube videos on how to do the stuff and then just go to the rink and try and do them myself. Mm -hmm. But that's a lot easier said than done. I usually can't do them myself mm -hmm. until much later. Is this something you do often, like just take on new learning projects that are quite challenging, whether it's uh, learning a game or learning how to skate or things like that? Hmm. Good question. Um, I would say not too often, but if there's something that like really interests me and it looks really fun and it seems accessible enough, I'll give it a try. And then if, if I like it from there, I usually get into it pretty hard. Some examples are mostly video games. You know, like if there's like a video game or a board game that I find interesting and I learn how to play it and I really like it, well, I'm going to be playing that game for many hours for the next few months until I don't want to do it anymore, you know? Okay. That still feels like it's more within your comfort zone, right? As opposed to learning how to skate. Um, because video games and board games, there's a certain convention already, unless you're learning something for the first time, like the Nintendo Wii when it came out or something like that. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So what what's yeah. what's what are some games that have excited you this year? What have you played that you're really that you were really into? Okay, um, so I've been playing this uh, roguelike card game called Wild Frost. It's a it's like a Slay the Spire variant. I'm sure most people know that one. Um, it's also similar to Monster Train in that you have these cards that you put on the board in the form of units. Um, and then, uh, there's other cards that can be like spells or items or whatever. And then when you're done, the enemies fight each other. Okay. So if the people listening are familiar with monster train, I think that is the most, uh, the, the best example. Um, slay the spire is like more like you play the card and it does the thing. Mm -hmm. And then once you're out of mana, you move on with your life to the next turn. So. Wild Frost is like 
I found the game to be extremely difficult. So you have to manage so many things. You have to manage where you want to put your guys, what cards you want to play, and then what happens when you hit end turn. Uh, and also every unit on the battlefield has like a timer and once the timer reaches zero, it takes its action. So you also have to manage, okay, what's going to happen next turn and next turn and next turn. And oh boy, the game is very hard and very punishing. Like if you forget about one character and then he goes and then you like lose like, you know, a really important character and you could like lose the game because of it. Oh, super punishing. So it's been like pretty fun to like learn the game, but also really frustrating too. You know, like people are like, oh, what do you think of Wild Frost? And, I, and my answer is it's the hardest game I've ever played. Mm -hmm. You know, are you drawn to that? Just just games that have extreme challenge or like a, a, a learning curve? Yeah, I think so, because I think like hockey is very similar. There's a huge learning curve and it's very rewarding when you master the, the specific, uh, specific things. I think dance games are similar. I think magic is similar. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think I am drawn to that kind of stuff, you know? And yeah. like, even if I keep losing, for some reason, I keep playing this game again. You know, it's just like, you're just coming especially back. like, like you're like losing to stupid stuff too. It's just like, I'm playing and then yeah. my main guy dies out of nowhere. I'm like, what, what the hell happened? All right, let's mm -hmm. play again. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> you're just, uh, that's a hallmark of a, a great competitive magic player. Like you just pick yourself up and uh, you're just, you're just ready to get back in there. Right. Like, what can I do differently? Yeah. This, this next uh, turn or whatever. Yeah, um, digging into that a little bit more about competitive stuff. Another thing that I learned about myself recently is, um, so there's being competitive with other people, right? But then there's being competitive with yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to keep getting better at the thing that I'm trying to do and like be, be the best at this thing that I can be, mm -hmm. you know? And I found that like since starting hockey and with a lot of other things that I've done, I think with magic too, even though it maybe took me a very long time to realize this, that it's not about like be beating other people. It's more about like being the best that I can be. Like I'm never going to be like a A-level hockey player ever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I'm too old. And it's not to like, say it's too late. You, you could have, maybe if you yeah, started, uh, I, I don't know, 20 I years I should have started when I was five or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, but it's just never going to happen. But I can be the best player that I can be, you know? So if I see something, if there's a, like something I'm struggling with, I can work on that specific thing, maybe get better. So I always have a goal every time I get out there is do better at at least one thing, you know, and if I do better at one thing, then I've had a successful night, you know? Mm -hmm. So not about winning. <laughs> and uh, it's just mostly just about like self-improvement. I think that's so true for Magic the Gathering. I, I feel like uh, there's this sort of vessel or framework where you have to beat other people in tournaments you have to qualify you have to like you have to have victory over other players but i think it really is that mastery of the self and the self-improvement that that really matters right in the end like that's yes. that's what it is and like you said it took you maybe some time to figure that out for yourself yeah um i think that's a common um pitfall of competitive magic players is like they're focused on beating everybody else, you know, so they lose a match, they get mad because they lost this match, right? Um, rather than kind of looking at what could you have done mm -hmm. to 
do better at this match, right? And like, you know, a lot of uh, people being like results oriented or focused on more about winning and not about what you could have done differently, mm-hmm. you know? And Just I think that's a big level up moment for, for, for Magic players. Yeah, yeah. Like we've all been through it, you know? Cause when I started playing competitive Magic, like I, I always got angry when I lost to somebody that I thought I was better than, you know? I was like, how could I lose to you, you know? So you actually tilted? You don't strike me as someone who would get emotional. Or maybe you're just uh, much more mature now. Well, I have been playing Magic for over 25 years. So did I have a time where, like, I wouldn't really say that I got emotional. I guess but I everyone say did that at I got, one point. Like, sure. like yeah. mad or angry or, like, or salty or whatever, you know? Like, there have been times where I got that, but it was long ago. You know, I, I've matured as a Magic player and person a lot over the years, you know? So maybe in my like early twenties, yes, I probably got salty at magic tur- not probably. Yes, I did get salty at magic tournaments, but like once I figured out about it's more about like taking a step back and figuring out what you did wrong and um how to do better next time, you know, you just approach the game differently and you just generally will get less mad. Yeah. You can get mad at yourself. Mm-hmm. Do you still get mad at yourself when you're learning new things like skating or hockey? Not really, no. Okay. I, I don't think so. Okay. So yeah, I just not, try to do better. You're not as demanding on yourself or you just know that the, 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 the learning curve is high, so you just have to like go through it, get through it. I think that like I and we, uh, like as people, we are just bad at things that we do. We're, we are never... The best at things that we do. I mean, maybe if you are specific people, but you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Like, we are not that good. Like, magic players are not that good at magic. Sorry, but <laughs> you're just not that good at magic. And once you, like, learned that, when you fail at a thing, you're like, oh, okay. Um, There's no reason to be mad. <laughs> I just can, you know, take this as a learning experience and do better next time. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that I get mad, but I, but I am like, yep, that was my fault that I let that goal in. That sucks. <laughs> okay, part of, <laughs> but I'm not like mad at myself. Part of it is also owning, owning up to things. Sure. Yeah. And being, being objective too. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's wrap this up with the rapid fire segment that I promised you. So, okay. all right, okay. let's go. Let's go. If there's a, if there's a virtual sound of a bell ringing or something like at the beginning of a boxing match, we would definitely have it right now, but I don't have any sound effects. So let's just get right into it. Um, Melissa, what's the best or most memorable magic play you ever made? Okay. Hopefully the story is not too long. I'll try and tell it as quickly as possible, but here it is. So I'm at a PTQ. 2008 it's Lorwyn block constructed and i'm playing against a pretty good player it's like the top four um i'm playing fairies blue black fairies the opponent is playing five color control so this is the deck that had vivid lands and reflecting pools and played spells such as cloud thresher volcanic fallout cruel ultimatum okay so think about all the mana costs there and the lands that we had access to that was the deck okay um so At some point in the game, my opponent played a Volcanic Fallout, putting himself to 18 life. And we played a really long game where we had a lot of back and forth of resources. And um, he used a lot of Cloud Threshers to like wipe all the fairies off the board. And I drew a card called Puppeteer Click. 
And um, this is a card that when you cast it, you get to steal a creature out of the opponent's graveyard. Uh, it has haste, and um, then I think it dies at end of turn or something. Or maybe it dies, or it gets exiled. I don't know. People can look it up. So I cast this Puppeteer Click and take the opponent's Cloud Thresher out of his graveyard, dealing two damage to all flyers and all players, which kills the Puppeteer Click. The Puppeteer Click has Persist, so it comes back into play. I steal the other Cloud Thresher from the graveyard, um, dealing two damage to all players and all creatures with flying. So my opponent is now at 14, and the uh, Cloud Threshers are 7-7s. Seven so I swing at him, and that is 14 damage. So I go on to win that match and then win the PTQ. All right. Exaxes. Yes. Yeah, so it was, not only was it Exaxes, it was with one magic card, and my opponent needed a very specific graveyard to do it. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Next question. What is the worst <laughs> magic play you ever made? And maybe what did you learn from it? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so uh, the worst play is not that interesting, but the learning was like pretty interesting. Um, so this was at the uh, Pro Tour that I top aided, which was Pro Tour Gate Crash 2013. And I was like deep into day two or something. And um, I was playing against Yul Larson. Uh, he was playing a Jeskai, Jeskai Charms, like Boros Reckoner and like Azorius Charm. And I think the goal was to uh, deal damage to the Boros Reckoner to like kill the opponent or something. It was like a mid-range deck um, that played those cards. All right. Anyway, he had a Cavern of Souls in play. It was naming some relevant creature type, but I forgot about it. So he cast a creature with the Cavern of Souls. I countered it with a dissipate and it's he said okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he, he said okay. And he didn't put the creature in the graveyard. And I looked at the board and saw the Cavern of Souls and was like, okay. So I put the dissipate into my graveyard and just like did not get flustered and did not let it affect me and just continued to play the game like it like it didn't happen. Like it was just a very normal thing. Like play this card, dissipate, okay, we move on. Um, and I just mostly learned um, to just like not let mistakes get to me and just, you know, recover quickly and mm -hmm. just continue to play. And I I went on to win. I don't remember if I, if I won that game, but I did win the match. I might have won that game too, but I don't remember. Um, another interesting thing that happened in that match was, and, and that play was Dave Humphreys, who at the time he was like the recruiter for R&D. Um, and he was looking for players to uh, like interview to like work at Wizards. And he watched the whole thing. So he watched me put the dissipate into the graveyard and like go on my merry way, you know. And uh, in my mind, it was like pretty embarrassing. But I'm pretty sure that like the, the whole like keep my composure and not let it affect me and just keep playing um, did like attribute to like him reaching out and wanting to interview me at some point. So not sure how true that is, but like that is a thing that happened and could be true. Basically, it showed your kind of mental fortitude, right? Like, okay, this thing fizzled, but let's move on to the next thing and let's just keep yeah, going. Yeah, just like uh, like poker face and no emotion mm -hmm. and just this happened and it moved on, you know? Awesome. What's your biggest level up moment as a Magic player? Tough one. Because, um, like, the one that I just said, you could argue, is, like, a pretty good level-up moment, you know? Yeah, that was a growth moment, for sure. 
Yeah. Uh, there are so many, like, stages of my magic career, you know? Yeah. Was there one particular um, point in time or tournament or stretch of time where you started thinking about the game differently that allowed you to make subsequent leaps? Yeah. Um, to be honest, like the last time you interviewed me, I think I talked about this. So I don't know how interesting it is to talk about it no, again. No, we'll do it again. Now everyone listen to the first <laughs> one and I'll clip this. So, okay. yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so there was a time where um, I was like a pretty okay Magic player, but definitely not a great Magic player. Um, and I wanted to start playing Magic Online just because I, I know that people who play Magic Online are good Magic players and like it helps them level up their game. So I decided to give it a try and um, I was able to get into one of the uh, high Magic Online clans on Magic Online. Um, I just had an in, like I had a friend who said he'd get me in and playtesting with those players was like so valuable and I learned so much from just playing games with them. Like we would like... We would join the dailies together and like chat in the the chat feature about it and we would also just like play games against each other you know and um that was a pretty big level up moment for me and uh that uh during that time that i was doing all that playtesting, that was leading up to pro tour valencia 2007 which was my first pro tour that i made money in so have to say that like th that must have helped right awesome which Magic player had the biggest influence on you and why? Okay. Um, so the player who had the biggest influence on me was Raphael Levy. Um, I guess, like, how did we get testing together is just kind of weird because, like, I didn't go up to him and ask him or anything. Like, the person who I was dating at the time wanted to just know all the Magic players. He just started talking to him. And um, one GP, he needed a room, um, and we had extra space. So we stayed in our room for the GP, and we just, like, talked and became friends. We had a lot in common. So um, at that point, um, when I qualified for my next Pro Tour um, and I needed somebody to test with, he was like, yeah, you can test with us. Let's go. Um, so we tested together for that Pro Tour, and it happened to be the one that I made top eight of, uh, which was Gate Crash 2013. And... Lots of level up moments like during that whole week of like play testing with like players who were just a lot better than me, including multiple Hall of Fame players, you know, and um, over the next like two years, uh, we play tested every uh, Pro Tour together, learned a lot from him. His approach to the game is just like he approaches the game like magic has variance and you are not going to win all of your games and you just have to understand that variance happens. And like, that was something that I took to heart, something that I learned from him. And um, I think it helped me a lot to just realize that like, you know, sometimes you have a low percent chance to win this match, but it's still a, a chance, you know, you can play to your outs, you know? So yeah, that's the answer. What's your favorite magic related travel story? Maybe something that happened to you. Okay, let's see. Uh, are any of these stories good, though? Um, I need a second to think. I don't want to tell a story of something where I did something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> you could try them out, and we can just pick the one that ends up being the, the best one, you know? Okay. I 
the one that I am thinking of, I don't think I, I should tell. So let me just move on for a <laughs> oh, second. <laughs> okay. You can tell Let's me just that one after that... the recording. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, best travel story. Um, okay. All right. Uh, here's one. Uh, my first Pro Tour was um, Pro Tour Venice 2003. It was my first time going overseas, my first time I had to ever get a passport. I didn't really know anything about traveling or anything. Um, so two unrelated stories they want to tell. One is just funny and one is like kind of the real answer to your, to your question. So I'm an American. I've never been to Italy before. I don't know anything. So. We get there and I just really want a coffee. And I'm used to gigantic Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 what I've been drinking. You know, I, I'm like in my early 20s or something. Mm. So I'm like, okay, go to a coffee shop. I order a large coffee in Italian, which is, I don't remember what the words are, but you know, cafe or whatever. I get the most tiny coffee I have ever seen. It's like this big. Um, and I was like, how is this a large? I don't understand. Did I say it wrong? And then I like just find out that like coffee in Italy is just like very small shots of espresso, which I didn't know that before. I had never really had an espresso like that. Like Starbucks was like not really a widespread thing at the time, you know? I'm just used to like the gigantic, you know, you say Dunkin large donuts. ice coffee, you just get this 32 ounce coffee, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so th that was a funny experience, but we've come a long way since then. And then same trip. Um, a bunch of players had a very early flight the next day at like 6 a.m. And for international travel, you have to get to the airport like two hours early. So we're like, we don't need a hotel. Let's just go to the airport at, you know, 3.30, 4 a.m. or whatever, because, you know, we're young and don't need sleep. Um, so uh, in Venice, the airport, so Venice is like on an island or it is an island. And it's just very hard to get around and they use boats for a lot of the travel, like water taxis and stuff. Um, so you had to take a water taxi or a water bus to get to the airport and they were not running at the time we wanted to go. So we just had to go the night before. So we just, we just had to go at like 11 PM or something. So we just had a ton of time to kill at the airport and everything was closed. So we just like kind of picked a place that had tables and just did a bunch of drafts all night. And it was really fun. And there were cards everywhere. And there were these Italian security guards like, what the hell is going on? Like the airport was just completely empty except for like, you know, 12 magic players. And that was a really fun first pro tour experience. Just like drafting all night and just leaving a mess all over some closed Italian coffee shop at the airport. Right on. <laughs> all right. Well, that was my rapid fire question segment. So uh, <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time today to record with me. Um, it's always a pleasure. Um, I, I felt it was pretty awesome. I felt like I got the the current day Melissa, but also some of the stories, which I think is, um, uh, it's such a, it's such, it's always nice talking to you. So thank you. Yep. It was a lot of fun. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to Humans of Magic. You've made it to the end. Thanks so much. You're awesome. If you'd like to support the show, there are two ways to do so. The first way is the most powerful. Tell a friend. Tell them to check out Humans of Magic. I'd love it if you could spread the word. The second way is to join the Humans of Magic Patreon at patreon.com slash humansofmagic. 
Patreon is the best way to directly support the show from a financial perspective. For as little as $2 a month, you can support me and join the Discord. It gives me the power to keep cranking out new episodes with your favorite magic people. If you want to go the $5 support route, you'll get a digital copy of the Humans of Magic book. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you, as always, making it all the way to the end, and we'll see you next time.